Hey there, Angel Donovan here with episode 72 of Dating Skills Podcast. Today we've got an interesting roundup of some of the latest insights into casual hookups and relationships in general. We've visited some different types of research lately with a few scientists. Most notably, we had Jana Vrangalova talk about the research on the topic of casual sex. And today we have another scientist kind of working in the same area, this time one who looks at dating and casual hookups from a biopsychosocial perspective. That's to say he's integrating the research from biology, from psychology, and social studies. And the nice thing about integrating research from different disciplines, different scientific disciplines in this case, is that there's a lot of cross-checking to make sure we're getting a valid view of reality. And you know how big I am on facing reality and getting us as close to reality as possible. Because no matter if it means looking at things that we dislike about reality or things we are uncomfortable with, if it's reality and we're understanding reality better, it always leads to better results. But discomfort is necessary if you want to improve your situation. So today I talked to guest Justin Lemmler, a PhD in social psychology who has published more than 30 academic pieces in the leading journals on sex and relationships. He maintains a blog also, which keeps up to date with the latest biology, so psychology and social studies and talks about like what's happening in the dating world from the latest perspective on casual hookups in general. Um, his main areas of focus are casual sex, secret relationships, sexual orientation and friends with benefits. So it's going to be an interesting episode today, again, looking at the world of casual sex and how that's really changing. Over time, so we're going to talk about technology and apps and a bunch of stuff like that. As usual, to get the show notes, the transcript, and the MP3 download of the show, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash DSP72. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14 year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. Hi, Justin. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for making your time available today. Sure. Hey, thanks for having me. No, it's been a pleasure. So before we dive into the meat of the interview, I'd like to get to know you and a bit about your background. So you're a scientist, but what kind of scientist are you? What, what's your PhD in? Because I know there's lots of different scientific areas. We've got a few different scientists on here. So what, what is the uh, perspective you're coming from? I am a, a social psychologist by training. Uh, I got my PhD at Purdue University, and I went there to sort of study the science of romantic relationships. And uh, somewhere along the way, I got sidetracked by sex and just became much more interested in that aspect uh, of relationships. That's funny, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, as so many of us get interested in sex, yep. very unusual. <laughs> so I heard, I saw in your book that you said um, you were working from a biopsychosocial perspective. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of where you've like tried to group your work with other aspects or what does that mean? It just sort of means that I try and take an interdisciplinary approach to, to understanding 
sexuality and sexual behavior. I think that there are a lot of different fields that have something to say that can inform us about why we think and feel and behave the way we do when it comes to sex. And so we can't just look at it from a psychological perspective. We also need to be putting things in the context of uh, evolution and biology and um, uh, sociocultural influences. So I just try and take a somewhat more holistic uh, perspective in the way I approach sexuality. Great. Thanks. That's good. Clear. And how old are you? Where, where are you right now? Where'd you live? Uh, I currently live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm teaching for Purdue University right now. Uh, for the last few years, I was living in Boston and I taught at Harvard, but uh, relationship circumstances pulled me away. Oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? <laughs> Is it like you change relationships? or? Uh, no, I've actually been in the, the same relationship for 15 years now. Uh, wow. Yeah, and we just kind of follow each other all around the country and it necessitates a lot of a lot of moves professionally and uh, um, personally. Well, it's great to hear you've got that extensive relationship experience as well. That's that. I, I, do you kind of feed off that sometimes with respect to you know what you're studying, or do you find it kind of separate? Because when, when I'm talking to scientists, I'm you know I'm aware that like most of their work is done in academia versus like some of the other people we have is like most of their what they're talking about has come from life experience. Is there some way that your life experience informs science or vice versa? You know, that's a good question. And um, a, a lot of people have asked me if the, the work that I do is research or me-search. Uh, and from my own personal view, uh, the work that I do is just mostly what I find to be interesting and fascinating. It's not necessarily about me or my personal life or me trying to understand my own sexuality or my own relationships. Uh, it's just this is what I find fascinating and interesting. And uh, that, that's where I've decided to make my contribution. So I know that we can't totally separate out personal lives from the work that we do. And I'm sure that that does in some way influence the, for example, the types of research questions I might pursue. Uh, but uh, do, you, do you think the stuff that you learn from your studies and from looking at studies in general, do you think that influences how you behave in life? you know, like in, in terms of improving the quality of your sex life, your relationships and so on. Do you think the work you do and the discoveries you make eventually ends up in, in kind of to influence your behaviors? I, I'm sure that it probably does, you know, that there's some bi-directional relationship where I influence the research that I do in terms of, you know, choosing certain questions based on my own past life experiences. Uh, and then I'm also sure that the answers that I find through research come back and influence me and uh, how I approach and, and think about the world and uh, new relationships. But um, it's something that I think is kind of beyond my conscious perception. And I don't, I don't necessarily see that. Right, right. It's, it sounds like it's a subconscious rather than a conscious process. Whereas um, it's interesting because a lot of the people I interview, they, they've kind of come from the other, they'll, they'll read science or they'll read books or they reflect on life experiences and try and consciously change behaviors and it's a completely different perspective so you know i was just looking to swap notes on that and see how different people approach it it's interesting so let's dive into the meat of the interview what i wanted first to do is like look at a bit of the state of science from your perspective in this area um and this is a topic i've like spoken with various people jeffrey miller and so on about and i think it's interesting to get different uh, perspectives on it so we have, we've already spoken about the biopsychosocial like you integrating evolutionary and biology and social different perspectives to try and get at the answer, which I think is a great approach, right? Because there's different data and it's all kind of useful to create one context. And I guess that's what we're trying to aiming to do here is we're trying to get 
the best information from everything, science and everywhere, and we're trying to integrate it into one best use model of it. Um, I guess that's what we're trying to do here on the podcast. So now one of the things you talk about is the the self-report surveys that are used a lot in, in your area of science and social and how they're used to assess people's sexual interests. Because a lot, I understand it, like a lot of the, the research in your area uses these uh, self-report surveys. Could you talk a bit about like the reliability, uh, the trends, the, the kind of things you're thinking about in that area to affect the quality of the, the research? So we actually take great care in trying to develop the surveys that we administer to participants in our studies. Um, and there are always going to be concerns about are people answering these questions honestly or not? And that has always been a problem in sex research, but it's not a problem that's unique to sex research. It happens in any field of study where you're administering surveys. Uh, there are always going to be some people who aren't answering honestly for a variety of reasons. Maybe they just don't want to admit something about themselves because they're ashamed. Uh, or maybe they you know, want to say what they think the experimenter or researcher wants to hear. Uh, so you know, there are different pressures on people when they're completing studies that might push their responses one way or another, and that might affect the quality of at least some of the data that we get. Um, but overall, if you look at the general trends in the research, you see that surveys are actually pretty good predictors of, of human behavior. Uh, they don't work 100% of the time across every individual case, but the overall trend is there and they certainly are telling us something meaningful. It's just uh, we have to take as much care and effort as we can to try and encourage honesty in responding. And one of the ways that we do that is by guaranteeing people anonymity, for example, when they're uh, completing sex surveys, because we know that when people are told that their responses are anonymous, that their answers are different than when they think someone else is going to find out. Yeah. Yeah. One aspect of that I, I find interesting, and I'm wondering if you've seen this in the data, is that uh, some people are very open-minded today, kind of very free. Uh, so when I'm on dates and when I'm like talking with uh, women and, and, and so, so on in my life, some are very open and they're willing to like tell me how many partners they've slept with or, you know, these kind of things that most girls were like, they refuse to give me a number or I just, the number they give me, I think it's completely fictitious number that's really played down. Uh, so I understand why the shame, the shame aspect, but I was wondering, if, interestingly, in your studies, if you see this kind of, I don't know, strange U-curve or something, because some people are open and happy to just tell it like it is, and they tend to be the more sexual active ones. So does it give you more emphasis on like, oh, there's, there's a bunch of people, there's like, there's an empty space in the middle of the survey, right? So say it's just like a very simple metric. It's like, how many partners did you sleep with over the last 20 years? There's a whole bunch that say less than five. And then there's a whole bunch that say over 40 because you've got the ones who are being like completely true and they're very sexual active at the same time. Whereas the other ones are downplaying the number, which is 10 or 20 because they feel kind of shamed about it. Have you ever seen any kind of play like that in the data? I don't know if I would call it sort of this inverted U-shaped kind of distribution where you've got a lot of responses at the extremes and not much in the middle. Um, instead, what I see in most of my research is a very skewed distribution where most of the people are saying very few partners. And then uh, that number just keeps tapering off uh, as it gets down toward uh, the higher numbers of partners. So certainly you still have people who are uh, admitting to large numbers of sexual partners, but it's very few relative to the people who are saying, I've only had one or two partners in my life. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. So another aspect of this I saw that you were um, uh, looking up, like uh, you were talking about ways you can kind of check the data. 
I guess or some ways are like external data. And I saw you write about uh, some study done on Google search data recently, right? So that's an external source of pretty reliable data because most people think that no one's watching them when they're Googling. <laughs> Um, right. I, I, don't, I certainly don't worry about it. Little do they know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should worry about it. Um, so what you found in that one of the studies was that people were Googling more for sex in conservative states. Right. And, and that's not a study that I personally conducted. It's just one that I wrote about for, um, for my blog. But uh, essentially what they did find in that study was that the more politically conservative a state is or the more religious a state is, the more searches people are making for sexual content online. Uh, and, and we don't know exactly why that is. Uh, some of the researchers who uh, conducted that study think that it's because conservative people are actually very preoccupied with sex uh, and that by repressing their sexual urges constantly in public, it leads them to try and find these private ways of acting them out. And uh, searching for a lot of sex online might be one of those private ways. Um, but that's sort of the gist of what they, they did in that study. Yeah. Well, I found that particularly interesting because, first of all, it's like this external piece of data you can use to validate your research, right? And there may be other, I don't know, are there other types of data you use which can help to cross-check your own research? Like, are there other ways that you've do, done that in the past? Right. And, and I think that's the way the best sex research is done. It's where we're trying to look at the same research question from multiple perspectives uh, and using multiple different research methods. So we don't just want to do a single, what we would call cross-sectional survey, where we just do a survey at one point in time with a cross-section of the population. We want to do more than that, if possible, try and do longitudinal studies or experimental studies or, uh, you know, take the research that we do on college students and then, you know, maybe look at, at a broader sample and look at for example, Google search trends or things like that. So it's it's trying to come at it from multiple perspectives and angles to to try and get the most informed answer that we possibly can. Yeah. So how comfortable do you feel with the kind of the state of the answers you have at this state? Like, are you eighty percent comfortable? And this is a fictitious number, but this is like how much further do you think you have to go until you feel really comfortable? Like, yeah, I'm really confident. Like ninety nine percent confident. These are solid answers that reflect reality. I've never thought about it in those terms. Like, what is the percent confident I am uh, in, <laughs> in, in my results? And so I, I don't think that I could could commit to a number. Um, what we try to do in our research is just try and contextualize our findings as much as possible and say, this is what we found and these are the mm -hmm. characteristics of the sample. And our results can only speak to people who might be similar to this group of people that we studied here. And, and oftentimes that's college students at one university in one part of the United States. Uh, so we just try and take the findings with a grain of salt, and then we try and uh, extend it out from there and look at broader yeah. samples and populations to see if the same findings are, are replicating or not. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But uh, what we try and do is just try and be very careful in who we say findings apply to. And this is where popular media reports about sex research get very misleading is because the headlines will say men are like this, women are like this, exactly. gays are like this, heterosexuals are like this. Uh, and, and that's where we start to run into a lot of trouble is that people want to generalize one research study to the entire world. Uh, and and that's, that's problematic. Right, right. We have to really be aware of the media, I think. I mean, I don't read anything in the media these days <laughs> like if you want good information go to the source you know um 
because anything after that tends to be misinterpreted or added and to and so on. But unfortunately, that requires effort and people don't always want to uh, go the extra step. And, and this is where we also run into a problem with scientific research is that it's oftentimes locked behind these paywalls. You know, people can't access it unless they want to pay $40 to read the scientific article. And, and this is where I think we fundamentally need to change how scientific research is published and, and distributed so that it's freely available to, to anyone who wants to, to read it and access it. Yeah, that's a great point. I haven't thought about that, but that does annoy me when I want to get a study and they want to charge me just out of interest. Why are they charging? Is it because all of these are for profit or they just need money to kind of cover their expenses? It's quite a bit of money, you know. It, it is. And, and personally, it's a pretty stupid system. Uh, the, the way it works is that we, the scientists, conduct the research and we are paid by the taxpayers in one way or another to do this research because most of us are at universities where uh, you know there are big government subsidies and, and students are using the government grants and loans to, to attend the institutions or the faculty members have uh, um, grants from the federal government to, to pay specifically for a research project that they're doing. Um, so what happens is that we conduct the research and then we sign the copyright over, give it away to a big publishing house. Uh, and then they publish the article and then in turn sell it back to the universities and the rest of the world. Uh, and, and we as scientists don't make any money off of that. We give the copyright away for free and then it's the publishers who are making all of this money. Uh, and, and that's kind of what needs to change is we need to stop giving away the, the rights to our work and letting someone else charge obscene amounts of money uh, for what should be a public good. It sounds like a very bizarre system indeed. I, like <laughs> it It's is. not capitalist. It I don't know. It's, I, well, it's just, yeah, very strange. I didn't know it was set up that way. Well, I hope there's some way that that's starting to change. There's more open ways of publishing or something that's going on to help you. It is. And, and I've tried um, publishing most of my recent research uh, in what are called open access journals, where uh, it's freely available to anyone with an internet connection. They can just get on and, and read the article in full and uh, evaluate it for themselves. That's great. But it's also the reason we got you on here, because then we have, we're talking directly with some of the guys writing the studies. So, and this is obviously for the public, right? That's another great way to get the information out as well. So thank you for coming on again. <laughs> Uh, so I wanted to go back to the the Google search and what came out of that because I've had a bit of experience with this. I, I've traveled extensively over the world and seen different things in different cultures. And culturally, China and Japan are more conservative societies. And in particular, my relationships with women there, they, they've been more conservative in the public to the point where you're not allowed to hold hands in public. Um, when I first got to China, it was uh, really looked down upon anything like that. So it was, it was a lot of repressed. And in the, like, in the way the girls communicated, they weren't allowed to talk about sex or anything, obviously, and they didn't feel comfortable. But I did find that I felt that that was repressed in the same way that that report said that the more you're repressed, the more it comes out. And I found that it came out in, I don't know, stronger sexual urges and just more fantasies. And, and like there was a, it was a heightened sexuality to uh, some of these women I came across. So I was just like wanted to point out that I feel that that's true. The more you repress something, the more it comes out. And I was wondering also if you've got like a take on that with respect to porn. There's a huge use of porn and we've, you know, spoken about it many times on here. And I'm wondering if it, mostly it's, it tends to be guys or, or women for that matter, who are repressing more, they're using more of the porn. And in a similar way to their Googly, Googly searching, if, if in their life they're walking around and um, kind of downplaying their sexuality, 
or not communicating it or not expressing it, then it tends to, or, or kind of not getting involved in having sexual experiences, then it tends to get pushed into Google searches and porn and, and other areas. And do you have a perspective on that? I think that there probably is something to that. I, I, I'm not thinking of any specific research studies off the top of my head that would um, necessarily speak to that point. But uh, theoretically, it seems like there should be something to that. And I think part of what the mechanism is here and part of what explains that is that there's a lot of psychological research showing that the more you try and engage in self-control, uh, so the more you try and you know restrain certain urges and impulses, uh, the weaker your self-control abilities become in the future. So you have a, a limited capacity for self-control. And the more you're exercising it by uh, wanting to, um, you know, say, repress sexual urges in public, the more that's going to lead you to try and uh, act out on it in other sorts of ways. And, and actually, there is one study now that's coming to mind that speaks to this point that I think is really fascinating. Um, they took college students who were in relationships. These were heterosexual male-female pairs, uh, and they brought them into the lab, uh, and they either depleted their self-control abilities or not. So they had them engage in an activity that would make them practice their self-control a lot in a short period of time, or they didn't have their self-control abilities depleted. And then after that, they took these couples and put them in their own private room and asked them to engage in physical intimacy with one another. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, they looked at what participants said they did with their partner in this private room. Uh, and what they found was that for the participants who had engaged in a lot of self-control and their ability to, to do that was depleted, they went further sexually with their partner uh, in this private room than participants who did not have their self-control abilities depleted. So people who, who practiced a lot of self-control were more likely to engage in heavy making out and, and remove articles of clothing and grope one another uh, compared to the, the people who didn't have their, their, their self-control taxed. Yeah, that is a very interesting. And it makes I know I've seen the willpower kind of willpower motivation research that all fits in with, and um, that's quite well established in other areas. Uh, but this is a specific sexual study which I've never heard of. That's very interesting. Yeah, um, and it's conducted by the same group of researchers who have done some of that other self control research on you know you deplete people's self control and then you give them a plate of cookies or a plate of radishes or something like that, and you you know see which food choices they make. Sex apparently isn't any different than that in terms of how your self-control abilities uh, play out. Right. So is it Roy Baumeister's work? Correct. Or is it someone else? Okay, great. Yeah, very well known. Okay, great. So I know you've worked a lot on sexual fantasies, and this plays into this a bit because what we're talking about is kind of repressed, and I guess sexual fantasies are a form of uh, forts, which may result from repression or, or heightened. So in connection with this, do you think, we just spoke briefly about Nancy Friday, because Nancy Friday wrote these books about um, she interviewed lots of women and their sexual fantasies. And it seemed in those books that the more repressed the woman's sexual life, like where she, if you were in a marriage where you had had 20 years of no sex or just sex, which was within a very kind of male dominated in on his terms and not on her terms, um, they would have crazier fantasies. They would have a lot more kind of visual and, and so on. Um, so what has been your experience in, in the area of sexual fantasies? Are like people having more sexual fantasies in when they have a certain type of lifestyle? Or what have you seen in the research on that? Well, that's a really good question. And that's something that I'm looking at right now in a study that I'm conducting. Um, doing a survey right now that is designed to be the largest and most comprehensive 
survey of uh, sexual fantasies ever. And in fact, people who are listening to this can actually participate in the study if they wanted to, uh, just by going to my website. It's sexandpsychology.com. And there's a a link for it on the sidebar uh, if you want to participate in the study. But I ask people about a wide range of personal characteristics, their sexual history, their personality. uh, And then I'm going to look at how all of those variables relate to the kinds of sexual fantasies that they're having and how often they have fantasies and when and where and so forth. So I will have data that can speak to that question soon, but I don't have it right now. Okay, great, great. What have you looked into so far in the area of sexual fantasies that kind of research, or is this just something that you started to work on? Yeah, this is something I'm I'm working on right now. And what I really want to understand is, and it's funny, this, I guess I should say, this kind of all started through me teaching human sexuality courses uh, in, in colleges. Um, every semester, I have always asked my students to anonymously submit their biggest sexual fantasy of all time, uh, which we would then read in class. And then I would have students kind of look for themes in the fantasies that would come up and also try and guess whether fantasies were written by men or women and uh, what their sexual orientation was. And uh, the results of that just semester after semester have always fascinated me. And I've just kind of always wanted to know more about where do these fantasies come from? Uh, who has them, and and how common are they? What kind of ideas? I know I know you haven't done any research yet, but what kind of like think assumptions are you making going into this research that have kind of been taken from your classes and and that experience that you're kind of testing for the hypothesis you're looking to test? One is that uh, I think deviant sexual fantasies uh, are much more common than anybody is sort of willing to admit, uh, and that uh, people don't just have one thing that they fantasize about, that there's a wide range uh, of fantasies that people may go back and forth between uh, at, at, at different points in their lives. Uh, so you know, those are just a couple of the many things that I want to look at. But I also want to look um, kind of at this question of how are people represented in their own sexual fantasies? So do people's fantasies include themselves? And if so, how are you different in your fantasy than you are in reality, both physically and psychologically? Uh, and, and also, what do the typical partners in our sexual fantasies look like? And how does that differ for men and women and, and people of different sexual orientations? Uh, so I really want to get a good picture of what it is that, that people are fantasizing about beyond just, you know, a specific sexual act. Yeah. I guess a key question is like, does the sexual fantasy represent something that we need and is missing? Exactly. Or, or that we want? Or is it, I don't know, some kind of balancer? It's not necessarily something that we want, um, but we want we want to kind of have those feelings, although we may want, not actually want or need it in our lives. Right. And I really want to look at this this sort of connection between fantasy and reality and how much of our fantasies is a reflection of our past sexual experiences yeah. uh, and how much of it is sort of a plan for what we want to do in the future. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, for everybody, there's a little mix of both of that. Um, but uh, it's, it's an interesting question that really hasn't been fully explored yet. That's great. Great. Yeah. Well, so I know the the, the other area of your research has been uh, different types of relationships, mostly like hookups, casual, and kind of secret affairs. What are the biggest takeaways you've taken over time? Because I know you got a you got thirty plus studies um, out there in the in the research journals. What kind of things have you discovered over time uh, that you thought were interesting or potentially kind of kind of like ah oh, I didn't I didn't think that would be the case. Uh, so lately, a, a lot of the work that I publish has been on 
friends with benefits. And our, our first paper on this was sort of looking at how do men and women differ in why they get into friends with benefits relationships in the first place and what do they hope to get out of it in the future. Um, and I think the findings of that first study weren't particularly surprising, but I, I still think they're interesting uh, in the sense that they show that men were significantly more likely than women to say, hey, I'm starting this relationship just because I want sex, whereas women were more likely than men to say, I'm starting this relationship because I want to emotionally connect with another person. Um, and then we also found a difference in sort of what people hoped would happen to the relationship in the future. So men, by and large, want their friends with benefits relationship to stay the same in the future for as long as possible. Just keep this open-ended opportunity for sex available. Uh, whereas women mostly wanted uh, th their relationship to change form, either going back to being just friends or to uh, become a romantic relationship. Uh, or to have no relationship at all, which I think is really interesting that some people say, you know, hey, I, I have this friends with benefits, but I don't want anything from them in the future. <laughs> um, we actually just finished a longitudinal study of friends with benefits to kind of look at, so what ultimately happens and how successful are people in getting what they want out of their friends with benefits relationship? Uh, and we're going to present the results from this study next month at the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality Conference. Um, basically, what we found was that people who want their relationship, they want their friends with benefits to turn into a romantic partner, are not very successful. It was only about a, I think, 16% likelihood uh, that if you said you wanted to be friends with, if you wanted to be romantic partners at time one, that you actually became uh, romantically involved one year later. And the, other, and the other question I think I would layer on that is, in those situations, how long did the relationship last? Or like, if, if you got married, did you get divorced pretty soon? Because it's, it seems like a bit of a bad start if one person is considering it friends of benefits. And in this case, you're saying it's mostly women. But I guess there were some men that sometimes are looking for an emotional connection. Or was it? Absolutely. There's, there's nothing that's ever 100% of the time. Men are like this. Women are like this. It's just relatively speaking, women are more likely to say this and men are more likely to say that. Um, one of the things that we also found that I think is sort of looked at people who were able to maintain some type of friendship with their friends with benefits over that one year period um, or transition into a romantic relationship or go back to being just friends. Those people who are able to maintain some kind of relationship are the people who communicated more about their relationship at time one and, and their expectations. And so communication really does seem to be the key for having a happier outcome uh, in these kinds of relationships. Right, right. And you would, you would, you would say that uh, wanting no relationship would be a signal that uh, you're unsatisfied, you know, uh, with, is, is that, is that the assumption there? It, it could be. Um, it could also be that you're just seeing this as a temporary thing. And this person is really to you, mostly just an yeah. opportunity for sex. I'm not going to overlay a value judgment yeah, yeah. on that. Um, <laughs> uh, but there are some people who might look at their relationship that way. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're dissatisfied with this person. It's just that they have other plans for themselves or for their future uh, relationship. So, so some people might be viewing it kind of as a placeholder uh, while they're sort of playing the field, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly fits the stereotypes, right? That, that uh, women... Um... I want something more emotional and like one of my buddies was just talking about this he's got a friend with benefits at the moment and you know she obviously wants something a bit more emotional and he's just he just wants to get laid you know it's like so it's, it really does fit the stereotype 
um, it seems uh, that, that that kind of is, is is what's going on all the time. Yeah, there, there definitely is some hint of truth to the to the stereotypes there about casual sex. My own experience is like um, often what happens is, uh, and I like the point that you were talking about the communication being important to stay in touch because over time, as I've kind of got better at this and more mature, like you know, I, I've been a lot more open in my communication, and I tend to stay in touch with everyone now. That I've been with and I've had relationships of whatever sort but at the start it certainly wasn't like that there were some relationships that were permanently dramatized and it wasn't really a good idea to stay in touch and I think that the part about communicating expectations is important and what I recognized from my earlier years was that women would get extremely frustrated um, and I felt like I'd been pretty clear but obviously that wasn't the case. Um, and so it, I felt like it was a very traumatizing experience for some of those those women. Although for me, it was a very casual and it was like a nice thing because we got together and we'd have fun and everything. It seemed like some of them felt like it was this tortured process where they're always trying to get something but not, never getting it. So I don't know what degree you've looked into how unsatisfied people get with that, you know, how negative it can be versus uh, positive. Uh, yeah, I don't really have a, any research looking specifically at that. Um, so I'm afraid I don't have anything that can speak to that question. That's cool. That's cool. That's exactly the uh, best answer I'd expect from a <laughs> scientist. No, no BS here. No making up stuff. Yeah. Like, no, there is no answer to that. Great. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> okay. So um, in terms of other aspects we haven't already spoken about, other areas that you've found were pretty interesting or just like they're completely the same. Yep, the stereotype is true. Uh, so, so in some of my other research, I was looking at this idea of secret romantic relationships, the relationships we tend to hide from other people in our lives. And what I wanted to look at was kind of who does this and why and what are the implications of this for the quality of the relationship and also for your own personal health and well-being. Um, and what I found in that research was that it's a wide range of people who hide their relationships. It's you know, people who are in gay relationships. Uh, interracial relationships, relationships where they're much older or much younger than their partner. Sometimes it's people having affairs, uh, people of different religious backgrounds. I mean, there's a whole host of people who are doing this, but by and large, it's the same motivator for most of them. It's, I'm doing this because I'm afraid of what my family and friends will say if they find out. Right. It seems like you just brought up too there, actually. Most of what you said, like religion, ethnicity, um, sexuality, these are things you might want to hide because of your social reputation within certain communities. And then there's the affair, which is, that's kind of another motivation. That's like, you know, I'm supposed to be with this person and it will be a breach of trust or communication, whatever, and it would wreck that relationship. So it's on a one-on-one -on -one versus a kind of more social community basis. Is that, would you look at it that way? Sure. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. And Basically, what we found was that sort of regardless of the reason, you know, why people are hiding their relationship, the effects of it seem to be pretty bad. So the more secret people are keeping their relationship, the less committed they tend to be, the less satisfied they were, uh, and the more likely they were to break up over time. Um, and yeah, that's, that's good information for people who may be on the opposite end of that. Yeah. And uh, we also found that it's not just secrecy isn't just related to the quality of your relationship, but it's also related to your personal health. So the more that people are keeping their relationship secret, the lower their self-esteem was, and the more symptoms of poor physical health they reported experiencing. So uh, what I think is kind of going on there and what the data seem to suggest is that keeping a relationship secret is stressful. Uh, and all of that stress can put wear and tear on your physical and psychological health. Right. 
Right. So it seems it's like if we're, we're talking the person keeping the relationship secret versus uh, the other one, it seems it's it's stressful and it's negative and for like self-esteem and aspects like this by having to do that. Um, but for the other person, like I'm, talk, I'm kind of trying to talk, talk about personal takeaways and practical takeaways potentially for the audience here. For the other guys, it's kind of like a signal that that person isn't as serious or that it's not, although they might think they're serious, like eventually it's not going to lead to anything. It could be. I mean, that gets into the question of, is secrecy ever a good thing or is it always a bad thing? And I don't think there's always a one-size-fits-all answer there. Um, Because for some people, being in a secret relationship might be better than being in no relationship at all. Because at least you can have your sexual needs fulfilled and maybe have some emotional intimacy and connection. And so, although yes, it may be very stressful and, and that undermines your your health to some extent, maybe that's better than being alone and and being totally isolated because we know that that can be bad for your health uh, as well. So it's one of those situations where it's kind of hard to say if if secrecy is universally good or bad because it kind of depends on the individual circumstances to some degree. But, But certainly I think one takeaway from this is that if you don't have to be in a secret relationship, then don't <laughs> go out of your way to be in one. Right. And uh, I was just thinking as you were talking there, another, if you feel that you have to be in a secret relationship and it's this situation where, yes, you know, it's better than having no relationship. Well, the other idea is like, maybe you should just change your environment, your community, um, and then to, to one that where it doesn't have to be secret. And then you get kind of the best of both worlds. And yes, you have to change your life a bit and maybe change some things up, but maybe that's really the best choice. And people aren't thinking about that. They don't think they can, but in reality, we can we can nearly always make that change. It's just a question of the will to do it. Right. And and I think for some people, that's easier said than done. It depends on kind of what your environment is. And if it's your family, your parents, your siblings, that's something that you're kind of born into. You can't change that. I know that some people say you get to choose your family. Uh, you know, that's something that people in the gay and lesbian community often say. But there's still this desire oftentimes for people to want to get approval from mom and dad and from the rest of their family. And so uh, you can't always uh, change some of those circumstances. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Is there anything else that, you know, has particularly stood out in the things that you've discovered over time? So one other uh, interesting study I did recently looked at um, people who use smartphone applications to hook up. And I was specifically looking at men who have sex with men who hook up via Grindr, which is probably the most well-known smartphone hookup app that's out there today. Um, And the question I wanted to look at was sort of, do these technologies promote greater sexual risk-taking, or do they just attract people who uh, tend to take greater sexual risks to begin with? Uh, And essentially what we found was that it did not seem to be the case that the technologies themselves necessarily promote riskier behavior. Um, It just seemed to be that people who are more sexually active in general tend to gravitate toward the apps. And I know that that research was specific to men who have sex with men, but I would suspect that, you know, you would find the same thing with heterosexuals, whereby the people who are most sexually active are the ones who are going to use the apps. And so uh, there is necessarily some heightened degree of risk there, not because the apps promote greater risk, but because there's a selection effect for who is using those applications. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So obviously the heterosexual version there is like Tinder. Exactly. And um, I have to see what I've seen. Like, I'd say that's pretty much true. A lot of people seem very open on it. Uh, another interesting thing is I think as it's got more mainstream, just as it's got lot, lots of publicity, is that you seem to get a lot of people on there who don't know what it is. 
Um, and so some of them are like, you know, in their profiles, I'm looking for a long-term relationship. And it's like, I think there are people that are genuinely doing that, um, but they're in the minority and it's because they don't know where it, you know, where it came from and how a lot of the other people are using it. They're just kind of testing it out. And I'm pretty sure that those people kind of disappear a lot of the time because they're getting a lot more straightforward proposals from the other sex when they match up. Right. And one thing that's interesting that I found just sort of in my personal experiences talking to women uh, and men about using these different apps and, and Tinder in particular, is that a lot of women just aren't really using it seriously, meaning they're not using it with the intent of meeting anyone else because they think it's actually kind of creepy and weird <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so a lot of the people who are on these apps aren't actually even realistic possibilities because they're not really fully committed to, to kind of seeing things through. Uh, so that creates this additional level of, of, of difficulty sometimes in, you know, finding the right person uh, over those apps. That's an, that's an excellent point because, uh, like, I mean, based on my own experience, what happens is, like, as soon as girls come onto it, I'll start talking to them and I, I start talking to them whenever, like, I'll put them on WhatsApp or Facebook and, you know, I'll carry on the conversation there because I don't expect them to hang around a long time, a lot of them. Right. Uh, a lot of them dump the app because they say they're getting a lot of creepy, um, <laughs> a, a lot of creepy and direct, basically guys saying, hey, let's hook up tonight. And they get a flurry of texts around 10 p.m. at night or every night. And it's pretty predictable. All the girls pretty much say the same thing. So they don't last very long on there. But um, what I'm just kind of making the point is if, if you establish a normal relationship and more, uh, without intending to do that direct hookup route, then you have got a chance of establishing a, a normal dating or a normal kind of relationship with them because you're not approaching it in the same way as everyone else. And they're like, oh, you're not like the other guys on Tinder because you're not. So it depends how you use it and what you want out of it. But you can't, you know, if you, if you meet the girls quickly and before they jump off because they get scared, um, then you can start some, you've got a chance at some date and so on. Since I'm thinking of it, there's, there's one study I saw recently that sort of looked at the length of messages that people send through these you know, online dating apps and, and websites and how that's related to their likelihood of, of success in terms of getting replies and so forth. And the take-home message from that was not to overthink your message uh, because the ones, the messages that tend to get the most replies are actually the shortest ones. They're actually shorter than a typical tweet on Twitter. Uh, so so you don't need to, to sit there and painstakingly think out everything that it is you're going to say. Sometimes a simple hi or hello or just a very short message can be even more effective. That would definitely reflect my experience. I don't, and then some of the other guys, I'm like online dating as well. Same, same deal. Some people say you should write really long messages and I'm sure there are some people do that, but that's not my experience of what people respond to. And there are a lot of people who may say that's, you're just coming on too strong. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, you, you just need to be careful and there's a fine line and diminishing yeah. returns with, with spending more time on these messages. Well, yeah. So if I think about, if I kind of take a step back to the kind of models that I think of, it's if you're writing a lot, it shows a lot of emotional investment. And at that stage of the relationships, it's inappropriate. You don't know anything. Whenever I'm online dating or something, I, I don't really think I'm going to learn much from a profile. It gives me some kind of indicator, but I, people can say anything they want on a profile. Um, it's not until you actually meet someone or talk to them on the phone, at least, that you're going to really get some kind of you know real information. So I'll switch a few short messages and then like ask them out on, a, on for a coffee or on a date or whatever. And I'll say like, I'm sorry, but I, I think it's kind of impossible to get to know people on this. So, you know, I, I'd rather just like do a coffee date or something if, if you're down for that. And the response is always positive and they always agree with me pretty much because the same thing's going on from their side. They've probably already been on a couple of dates where the guy 
didn't turn out. They, they, you know, they messaged back and forth for a month and then I had this date and they're like, oh, he's not at all like I thought he was. Um, and he looks nothing like his picture. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So you got that kind of efficiency, uh, economical. I mean, if you're going to do online dating or something like this, you got to like kind of keep that perspective, not to get heavily invested in something that may not at all reflect what you're getting invested in. And it's just not appropriate. You don't know much about this real, this person. So investing that much energy looks weird to the other person. Exactly. And and one other piece of advice I could give here is to avoid the really crude sort of pickup lines <laughs> uh, that are often used. Because if you look at the research on how men and women perceive pickup lines, women by and large don't like the really cutesy and crude lines that a lot of guys tend to use. Uh, they don't at all. They always complain about this. It's. I'm still amazed that guys use them. Right. Have you got examples? Uh, I don't know that you've come across, or like a bit more specific, so that people can tell what we're talking about here. Sure. It's the, the kinds of things like, uh, do you wash your pants in Windex? Because I can really see myself in them. Um, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> it's I, cheesy. Yeah, like right. the really cheesy things like that. I, I don't really know that many people use that specific line, but that's not a good one. Uh, but you know, sort of the classic pickup line that isn't good is is sort of the hey baby what's your sign kind of thing uh it, right, you're, right. you're much better off with just sort of that simple hi or hello that just keep it short and sweet and uh don't get overly crude and you know very sexually suggestive and all of these kinds of things right up front definitely uh something that everyone should pay attention to yeah. there yeah uh, all of those uh, funky pickup lines. I, I'm still astonished at how many people uh, use those things. Uh, I just don't get it. Because I'm pretty sure like it, most advices don't use them. Right. But it's still the point still has to be made. Don't use them. Right. So a few things I saw in your blog, I'm not sure how much you've covered these yourself, is uh, basically some indicators of commitment when you're getting into a relationship. So it can apply to, say, like friends with benefits, like hookups, casual versus relationships. So we were talking about like a minute ago, the conflict between women who might want a bit more or some men, but mostly the trend is like it's mostly women who want to get emotional and it's a friend with benefits type relationship. So are there kind of signals? I saw a few things on your blog and I'm just wondering, like I saw IQs, uh, like physical intimacy and how the relationship started, like kind of the context, which kind of gave you signals as to uh, what the type of commitment was that the other partner was. Because I know a lot of people get confused about this, like how serious is this person towards me? And obviously it can lead to negative emotions down the line if you don't get it right. Right. And you're, you're right. There are, there are lots of different cues as to how committed people are, kind of what their intentions are for the relationship. I think some of that eye movement stuff is really interesting. Uh, in, in this one particular study, they found that, you know, the what men and women were looking at in an image, you know, whether they're spending their time, you know, for example, whether guys are looking at a woman's breasts or her face uh, is kind of an indicator of whether they're interested in uh, just a you know short-term sexual fling or if they're interested in a long-term relationship. So there is certainly something to that idea of, excuse me, my eyes are up here, that might give you some sense of kind of what that person's motivations are, what they're interested in, uh, and so forth. And as long as you're both on the same page, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. I just want to add something here. I used to do a lot of coaching in boot camps in bars and clubs where I take guys into the clubs and help them walk up to girls and talk to them and stuff. And uh, I remember a few clients which had particular problems is when they walked up, they would uh, basically look the girl up and down or they would check out her boobs or something like this. And instantly the girl would be disinterested. You know, it was like the easiest way to get blown out really quickly. And, you know, it makes perfect sense kind of with this, I think, with simple IQs, even if she's not kind of conscious about it, 
um, they're going to pick up on it straight away. Oh, this guy's just looking for a lead tonight or whatever. Um, so I'm going to stop talking to him right now. So that's a real world example, I think, fitted with what you just said there. Yeah, that's just one type of nonverbal cue that, that could potentially be a sign of what that person is really interested in or, or what they're really after. Also, things about their their own history that they reveal or acknowledge could be clues too. If someone, for example, has cheated uh, in the past, then it's probably, and they're willing to admit to that, uh, then it's likely that they're probably willing to do that again in the future. Uh, so that could be a potential warning sign or indicator, you know, somebody who is in a relationship and then takes up with somebody else. That should be a warning flag uh, if you're looking for a committed monogamous relationship. Right. And so one post I saw which on your blog was the mate poaching research. And I think that's really interesting because in the pickup artist uh, industry, the community, they used to talk a lot about boyfriend destroying. And it was like pictured as this like really cool thing where if a girl has a boyfriend, you would be able to say some things to destroy the boyfriend in her mind. And, you know, she would like get more interested in you. It was a horrible thing. But some guys were using this to like boost their ego and other things, uh, very negative behavior. But what's interesting, I think, is this research really shows that that's a terrible idea. <laughs> right. right, right. It's, it's terrible from the standpoint if you're trying to start your own relationship that way by stealing someone else's partner. Uh, those usually don't turn out very well. Right. Uh, and there's also that other issue of if you're just doing this because to make yourself feel better. Yeah, uh, that's not a very nice thing to do, obviously. Right, right. Well, that, that part's obvious. But I, what I like also is that the end result. Yeah like poach partners like if you're taking someone else's partner that tended to be a more dysfunctional relationship so not as satisfactory and they were less re reliable mates so they're more likely to uh, leave you later or have infidelity as i understood it is that correct yep and so if you think about it logically if you're able to convince this person to to cheat on their partner and take up in a relationship with you what's to stop someone else from doing the same thing to her later on and, and you become the person who had their partner poached uh so there's reliability questions there with with uh poached partners certainly yeah it's interesting whether it's kind of something that someone it's in their behavior Right. So you're just feeding off a behavior which that person has had in the past. Right. They've probably had more fidelities and started more relationships in this manner. I know I've, I've seen that sometimes with women in the past where they had that kind of background. So I was like, ah, right. It's kind of a dynamic versus say it was the first time you think they've kind of experienced this. And maybe by having done it once, do you think it kind of opens it up to happen more because they kind of rationalize it in a positive way? I don't know what your perspective is on how our brains work from that perspective. Yeah, it, there's also something to be said about, uh, you know, sort of once you pass a certain moral boundary, making additional transgressions, if you will, in that same area aren't as big a deal. You know, so sort of once you cross this threshold, it sort of opens the gates for you to engage in that behavior uh, continually in the future. Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely that. And I've seen that with like some friends in terms of uh, uh, exploring their sexuality, like, for instance, where they've been kind of um, sexually inhibited before, um, they'll start exploring their sexuality and it kind of goes to more and more on extreme levels. And I guess you see that with porn as well. Like people start off with basic porn and they tend, this is what we hear, I don't know if, what the research actually quantifies in terms of like, are they actually getting into more and more freaky porn? We know that people are watching freaky porn and that's kind of a trend, it's getting more freaky. How, how that progresses is do they start there or do they start normal and kind of like, steadily kind of wear down their barriers as you put it um and and like build up their tolerance to 
freakier and freakier things over time. I think the thought there with the porn stuff in particular is that uh, you sort of become desensitized. So, you know, you're exposed to something in pornography that initially is very shocking to you. Uh, eventually, that, that shock goes away. It, it takes something with sort of a higher threshold to reach that same sort of level of excitement. Um, that gets into this whole other question of porn and is it a bad thing and can people become addicted to it? And that's an area where I, I don't necessarily consider myself to be an expert, but I know it's a big controversy in the field where some people claim that porn addiction doesn't really exist. It's not really a problem. And that whenever porn does start to become a problem, there's usually something else at the base of that. So depression or anxiety, or, or there's some other issue in your own life that is causing you to to act out in this way and that it's not necessarily the porn, but then you've got people on the other side who are all about this desensitization and that porn is like an addiction, just like, uh, you know, alcohol and other things like that. So that's not really a, a settled issue in the field right now. Yeah. I actually have a whole bunch of other questions I wanted to get to, but I, I noticed that we're running out of time and I don't want to keep you too long. So just a couple of uh, other questions uh, to round off, like, who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality advice in this area of life? Like anything to do with dating, sex, relationships, like in, in these areas? Right. Um, there's actually a website called uh, the Science of Relationships that I write for uh, on occasion. And I know a lot of the people who are, who are contributors to it who tend to provide pretty good advice and insight and, and also just summaries of, you know, kind of the latest research that's out there in, in sort of a responsible fashion. So that's one potentially good site of tracking down multiple people uh, at the same time. Yeah. So, so for all of these links and the one you mentioned earlier, we'll put the links in the show notes uh, for people to access easily. And uh, last question, top three recommendations to help men get better with this area of their life as fast as possible. Right. And so, you know, sort of based on my reading of the research, the, the kinds of things that stand out to me, I'm not saying this is in any way a scientific list, but uh, the things that kind of stand out to me are you know, first and foremost to communicate, be upfront about your expectations and, and what it is that you want and, and try to establish that norm of just being open and honest and, and communicating because lack of communication is really the biggest problem in, in most relationships. Um, and you'll have to give me another minute to think of <laughs> the rest of this. Um, well, I said, Justin, thank you very much for all of your points and your authenticity today. You know, I really like it when people push back and say, I'm sorry, science can't prove that. <laughs> we have nothing to give on that. I'd rather get that answer than some made up answer. Um, so I really appreciate how genuine you've been and like how accurate uh, to, you know, based on what is scientifically provable today. And it's been a great discussion. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait, do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at datingskillsreview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.